0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Science Friday is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. That's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.
0: WNYC Studios is supported by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, software for technical computing and model-based design. MathWorks, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. Learn more at
2: mathworks.com.
1: Did you know that the U.S. has too many wild horses?
2: Now we're at a point where some scientists are sounding the alarm that we're facing an ecological and ecosystem collapse.
1: It's Thursday, November 23rd, and it's time to dig into some Science Friday. I'm Sci-Fi producer D. Peter Schmidt. There are 80,000 wild horses in the American West, but the Bureau of Land Management says the ecosystem they live on can only support a third of that number. The Bureau has resorted to roundups of the horses to reduce strain on the land, but these tactics have been controversial. Guest host Flora Lichtman talks to a science reporter who's been covering the story, and then we'll take a visit to a museum exhibit that explores humanity's millennia long relationship with pigs through opera.
3: Wild horses are an icon of the American West. I bet you can picture it, a herd of mustangs galloping free on an open prairie. But as romantic as that may sound, the Bureau of Land Management says there's a problem. The ecosystem can't handle all of them. There are 80,000 wild horses roaming around, but the land can only support about a third of that herd. So what to do? That's the subject of a new podcast from Boise State Public Radio. Joining me now is my guest, Ashley Ahern, science and environment reporter and host of the podcast Mustang. She's based in Okanagan County, Washington. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me. Okay, 80,000 Mustangs trotting around the West. What's the problem?
2: (laughs) Well, just like having too many of any kind of livestock in an area, uh, that land can be heavily impacted. And so what we've seen in the West, and there are more than 80,000 horses and burros, I should say, across 11 Western states. The BLM, Bureau of Land Management, manages these herds, assesses the landscape, looks at um, the forage, how the grasses are growing, um, the soil health every year, and makes estimates, sets goals for how many horses would be a healthy amount on the landscape. And keep in mind, they're also managing how many cows are allowed to graze on the landscape. So it's a very tenuous balancing act. But what the BLM scientists and many, many other scientists who I spoke with, I should be clear about that, who don't work for the BLM, are saying is that The numbers of horses have increased steadily ever since we passed the Wild Horse and Burrow Act in 1971, and now we're at a point where some scientists are sounding the alarm that we're facing an ecological and ecosystem collapse, especially in places like Nevada. So I traveled to Nevada, of course, because I wanted to see what this looked like firsthand. And I met up with this. um, He's been working for the Nevada Department of Wildlife for 30 years as a biologist. His name is Mike Cox. And he is one of the folks who have been vocal about what he's seeing on the ground. And he took me out into the Stillwater Range in northwestern Nevada and I mean, just walking around out there, Flora, you can see manure everywhere. There's not a lick of grass. It's kind of like scraggly sagebrush um, with nothing around it that any animal would want to eat, whether that's mule deer, pronghorn, elk, uh, or cows or horses for that matter. And it's, you know, Nevada is the driest state in the U.S. And it is um, that these parts of the world are so harsh that when you then add this many animals on the landscape, you can see firsthand what it does to habitat that many other species rely on. I don't have answers for you today. You got a lot of anger, though.
1: (laughs) I have a lot of frustration. Yeah. Bent up frustration. Yeah. And the ecosystem is going to collapse. I I would give
2: parts of Nevada a decade. That's all it's got left. With this number of horses on it. Yeah. And then there's not going to be anything for anyone, for any animal.
3: A decade. So, what's the federal government doing? How are they how are they managing the horses currently?
2: I I got to say, the Bureau of Land Management is um, caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, they do roundups and they use helicopters, which are incredibly controversial and. Um, Frankly, the videos are hard to watch and, uh, you know, they basically corral horses, run them over the landscape into um, traps, you know, shoots that then uh, close the gate behind them and uh, ship them off to long term holding facilities where they may or may not be adopted but they've also adopted other methods um bait trapping is one that i think is becoming more popular but it's not as effective in gathering large numbers of horses so what they'll do is they'll set up hay and feed, you know put feed out in a in a herd management area and the horses will become acclimated to going and eating there and then they'll close the gates around them so that you can catch maybe five horses 10 horses at a time but you're not getting you know 20 40 100 horses in when you use helicopters and I'm not saying that I'm a, I'm a proponent of helicopter gathers by any means, but when you look at the numbers, you know, some of these um, herd management areas have thousands more horses than the science says the landscape can support. So bait trapping may not get the BLM to their, their target numbers fast enough uh, as helicopters maybe could.
3: In the course of your reporting, did you talk to any indigenous communities, people in indigenous communities about, about horses in the area?
2: I did. Um, that was a priority for me because of course, um, indigenous nations in the American West are some of the most incredible horse people in the world. And, um, it was fascinating to learn because, of course, there are you know more than eighty thousand wild horses on public lands, you know, government-owned public lands, uh, but there are far potentially far more than that on Native American reservations. And um, as sovereign nations, they can manage those horses in whatever way they see fit. In one episode, I traveled to the Spokane Indian Reservation, which is not far from where I live in Okanagan County in Washington State, and learned about how they manage their horses, which is by rounding them up on horseback, and um, and some of those horses do end up. Unfortunately, going to slaughter. Um, some of them are adopted into homes and used as riding horses. Um, but it was just really powerful to hear their historical and cultural connection to the horse as a relative is the term that that they used when they talked about the horses there.
3: I want to get to the one of the most amazing parts of your podcast to me, which is your own jaunt in this muddy corral. You adopted your very own wild horse from the federal government. Please tell me more. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, so this was part of my education process. Talk about um, life imitating art, <laughs> or art imitating life. I'm not sure how you want to phrase that, but uh, I really wanted to immerse myself in the story. And I, I grew up riding horses, and I, I have a horse um, already, a domestic horse uh, that i had been riding for for years now. And I had kind of myself fallen in love with the, the mystique of the Mustang and um, then was happy to find out that you can get one from the federal government for about $125. You have to pass, you know, they require certain things about your property, of course, before you can take one home. But, um, but yeah, so I brought home a uh, Mustang from Oregon. Um, a year and a half ago. Uh, he was wild for the first two years of his life. And then he was gathered up. They used um, the bait trapping, actually. So he wasn't helicopter gathered. He was uh, trapped and then brought in. And I brought him home. And I've we've been figuring each other out ever since. We test each other and we push each other, but he's an amazing partner. And yeah, I, I cherish him. His name is Boo.
3: Has he changed the way you thought about this story and kind of the controversy? Like, do you think about the controversy around wild horses differently? Because of Boo, I
2: do. It hurts me to think about him being taken away from his family. I do think about that—that that he was roaming, he was roaming the wild Oregon sagebrush desert for two years. And horses do live in in family bands, so that is a hard thing. Uh, but now that I've seen that landscape up close and I've seen what happens when too many horses are out there, I my my brain, you know, fast forwards to um, where that's headed if we don't do something about it. If we don't try to manage these populations. We have a gift. We have amazing animals in this country roaming free. And and we have an opportunity, I think, to form these deep relationships with them if we choose to and potentially take a small bite out of a very big ecological problem in the process.
3: Where did these Mustangs come from? Like, how did they get to the West? So the dominant
2: Western science narrative uh, for many, many, many years has been that horses, Evolved in North America millions of years ago, right? Uh, To eat, you know, equus roaming the the vast grasslands and rainforests of what is now the American West. Um, But they went extinct, according to Western science, in the last ice age, so 10,000, 13,000 years ago. And they didn't come back until the conquistadors brought them from Europe to Central and South America about 500 years ago. And then from there, they were traded, or some would say stolen, I don't like to use that terminology, with the Native American peoples who then, through trade routes, brought the horses up through the middle of the country into the North American West. I have been intrigued by another narrative that's emerging with um, scientists like Dr. Yvette Running Horse Colin, who are challenging that. Or questioning that accepted wisdom that the horse went extinct, and and wondering and and positing that rather it was here all along in pockets survived the last ice age with the indigenous peoples of North America and has been a part of their culture for millennia. In fact, and that it was not you know bestowed upon the natives by the colonialists when they arrived. And so Yvette Running Horse Collin has some really powerful thoughts on that. She is the executive director of the Global Institute for Traditional Sciences and she's a member of the Oglala Lakota Nation. So I visited her in uh, the Black Hills of South Dakota and I'd love to play you a cut from her.
4: The mainstream narrative just continues to get pushed and pushed and pushed and an entire body of knowledge is ignored, um, passed by, purposefully pushed away. So that is... um, something that we could not have happen if we were truly trying to understand the history of the horse in the Americas. Because whether they like it or not, we were the ones here.
3: Powerful. You know, listening to your podcast, I felt like horses and their history are really wrapped up with all of these kind of huge American narratives, you know, good and bad. It just feels like they're saddled with so much symbolism. But I wanted your take on that.
2: Oh, I yeah, no, I couldn't have said it better. I think that we all have some kind of a connection, even if it's just growing up reading reading books about them as a little kid. There is a mystique and there's a power to them. And it was a wonderful experience to gather all of those perspectives and to be surprised by those perspectives.
3: That's all the time we have for now. I'd like to thank my guest, Ashley Ahern, science and environment reporter and host of the podcast Mustang. She's based in Okanagan County, Washington. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having-
1: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. (laughs) I am a writer and I have this this very slight hunch. He has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast.
2: Having me.
3: To close out today's show, producer Dee Peterschmidt is bringing us a story about an art exhibition that explores our relationship with pigs. Dee is here to tell us about it. Hi, Dee. Hey, Flora. Okay, tell me about this show.
1: Yeah, it's called Hybrid and Interspecies Opera, and it's basically a a multimedia ode to the pig. So there's opera, uh, there's 3D clay prints of pig statues. And a short documentary of scientists who are working to create like these compatible organs and pigs for human transplantation, um, which is called xenotransplantation. And basically, the show is just trying to get at like, you know, humanity has had this millennia's long relationship with pigs. We've been genetically modifying them for centuries just through like breeding. And, And the show is kind of asking, like, how far will we actually go to make pigs work for us?
3: Did the show make you see pigs in a new way?
1: It did. I mean, it was really striking to see uh, during the documentary, the pigs actually in the lab and the scientists are like very respectful towards them and are clearly care about them. But ultimately, their lives are going to be used for research. Um, and so we think about pigs in the context of our food. But this kind of made me think about them in terms of like, how we're trying to solve human health problems using them.
3: Well, I can't wait to hear more. Dee, take it away.
1: In 2015, artist Heather Dewey Hagborg came across news from the Wies Institute at Harvard, which had made a record 62 edits to a pig's genome using CRISPR to make their organs more compatible for human transplantation. More than 100,000 people are waiting for an organ donor in the US, and many of them will likely never get one. So, since pigs' organs are so similar to humans, scientists have been genetically modifying them to make sure people can actually live a full life with, say, a pig heart.
4: And I thought that was really fascinating on a philosophical level, and of course, all of the ethical questions that it raised.
1: Heather also self-describes as a biohacker, and has worked with genetics before in her art, and decided to pursue that topic for her next exhibit.
4: So the main kind of research question for me was really to probe this question that scientists very often say that, Genetic engineering is a continuation of 10 millennia of domestication, selective breeding. And I wanted to just dig into that and see, is, there, is it a rupture? Is something radically new happening with CRISPR gene editing? Or is it a continuation?
1: You're listening to Science Friday from WNYC Studios. So she started doing research into xenotransplantation and interviewed scientists and archaeologists. And Heather was surprised how long we've been modifying pigs for our benefit. There's a timeline on the wall in the exhibit that gives kind of a highlight reel of our relationship over the last 10 millennia, how modern pigs were domesticated from ancient wild boars in both China and Europe. Tissue and organ transplant experiments started in the 1900s. And in the last decade, scientists have been using CRISPR to reduce the chances of organ rejection from the immune system after surgery. But the field is moving so fast that she had to make a last-minute change to that timeline.
4: So as we were putting up the story of the last individual who received a xenotransplanted heart, it originally said that the the individual would still be living. um, And he passed away basically the day before the opening of the art exhibit. So that was a, a sad change that we had to make.
1: That patient, who was the second person to receive a genetically modified pig heart, died six weeks after surgery. Heather didn't want to talk to just scientists over Zoom about xenotransplantation. She wanted to actually see one of these labs for herself. So she went to the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, which has its own lab that is working on genetically modifying pigs for xenotransplantation, and she brought a film crew. The resulting documentary plays in the exhibit, but she took a slightly different approach to the soundtrack.
4: And I was just really blown away by the power of the words of these people, um, the drama that was there sometimes the humor. And so I started to suddenly started hearing it in this kind of opera voice, you know, singing these words out. And then I thought, I wonder if I could make that happen. That would be a really interesting approach and do something very different than your standard kind of talking heads documentary. I mean, one of the really important points is what a tiny fraction, the number of pigs being used for xenotransplantation would be relative to the number that would be used for, for meat production. Um, And he says in there, a few hundred thousand per year, a fraction of the three billion consumed for food. And then, of course, the chorus that comes there, which is thousands of clones every
1: day. (laughs)
4: Luckily, I'm also not the one singing. (laughs) It wasn't that bad, though. But I do walk around with it stuck in my head.
2: There is a gift. There is a betrayal.
1: The film ends with Heather standing on a beach, making a pit fire, and placing 3D-printed clay pig models that were scanned from ancient boar ceramic statues into the flames. It's her way of memorializing pigs, past, present, and future.
4: When I started doing research, I thought that seems pretty problematic to be exploiting all these pigs. And then through talking with scientists, eventually then meeting the pigs, meeting the veterinary scientists who were working with the pigs, seeing the care that was there, in addition to, of course, the kind of tragic, deaths that they face uh, definitely did give more dimension to my understandings of it. But another branch of the project is around anticipating what pigs might become and thinking about directions that pigs might go in the future.
3: Thank you, Dee. That was producer Dee Peter Schmidt. You can check out hybrid and interspecies opera at the Friedman Gallery in New York City for the next couple of weeks, and there will be a live performance of the opera at the Exploratorium in San Francisco in March. You can learn more at our website, sciencefriday.com/pigart.
1: And that's it for today. Lots of folks helped put the show together, including
3: Kathleen Davis, Diana Plasker, Beth Ramey, Danielle
2: Johnson.
1: Tomorrow, we'll talk about the winners of Science's Strangest and Silliest Awards, the Ig Nobels. Until then, I'm Sci-Fi producer D. Peter Schmidt. See you later.
0: NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more.